ever-burning, trimmed, maintained in the world in which we live. In this darkness, as it's described in Isaiah chapter 60, the Lord says that, Behold, darkness has covered the earth, and gross darkness the people. It's like there's a pervading spirit of darkness, and then there's the people. And that's where the darkness really becomes manifest at times in our, what we see. And I think we feel that in our spirits at times. We feel that weight. And just like the, the cloud cover this morning, we've had some beautiful weather, but now the sun's hidden, and it's not quite as brilliant. It's not quite as uh, nice because the sun isn't shining. And on top of that, we aren't experiencing the benefits of what clouds should normally bring, rain. We are a little bit in a season of drought. <clears throat> but in the midst of whatever that is, it, the Bible says, The Lord shall rise, and his glory shall be seen upon you. I think that means his, his glory being seen upon us means it, it becomes evident. There's an evidence in our life that God is moving and working in our life. I was thinking of, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in the, in the Genesis, when it begins to, the word of God as it's given to us, the first chapter of Genesis, where God created the world, <clears throat> he's referred to as just God. God did this. God did that. And he created all these things. He created man. Well, it isn't until chapter 2 that, that the, the God is referred to as the Lord. I had to think of that. It wasn't until after man was created that God became Lord. I don't know if that's what is meant to be communicated there. It's, it's something we can notice. That as he put man on the earth, he became Lord over them, ideally. He was the Lord God. And so you see in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, God is referred to as the Lord God. The Lord God. In that setting. And then as you move through scripture, he is referred most commonly to as the Lord. The Lord. I think of, of the Lord, maybe T should be capitalized. The Lord. It's part of his identity in our experience. But um, recently then I've been more um, in, uh, going, working through the book of Deuteronomy. And I thought I would mention a little bit of some things I've seen from, from that book of Deuteronomy. And, and one is, I think you could say this is a theme, it is the way God is addressed. He's addressed as the Lord thy God. Normally when you see the Lord addressed in that book, it is the Lord thy God. The Lord your God. It adds that emphasis on not, not just a God, 
not just the God, but he is your God, your personal God. <clears throat> Another thing I noticed is, uh, I think a, a theme <clears throat> that becomes evident in, in um, the book of Deuteronomy. Moses refers to the Lord. He speaks of the Lord as the one who, who speaks out of the midst of the fire. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, the one who speaks out of the midst of the fire. And I think he was referring to the, the Mount Sinai experience. And also, Moses may have had in his mind when God spoke to him out of the fire there at the burning bush experience, where it all began with Moses. And that became the people's experience, too. They, they heard God speaking out of the midst of the fire. And then a third theme I'd like to uh, pick up on from Deuteronomy, and I might just turn to this, in chapter 3, verse 21. <clears throat> And, and Moses is, is a little bit recounting some things that have already happened. But in doing that, he, he also expands a little bit on, on what happened originally. And in verse 21, Moses says, And I have commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto these two kings. So shall the Lord do unto all the kingdoms whither thou passest. Ye shall not fear them, for the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. I like that thought, thine eyes have seen. You have witnessed, you have seen the, what the Lord your God can do. And that he destroyed those enemies. Again in chapter 4, uh, looking ahead a little bit, the same thing in verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God, hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you, this day. I hope our testimony can be that, you know, we, we have seen some evidences of God in our experience. And we have seen that we are alive today. And in the sense that, uh, of Psalm 91, where it says, God says, only with thine eyes shalt thou see and behold the reward of of the wicked, and that is, is what happened, that the Lord the God destroyed those from among you that, that followed the wrong way, the wrong teaching or, or wrong gods. Let's turn back to chapter two of Deuteronomy. I like to read verses Let's see here. Is it 24? Yes. 24 through and 25. I'll read those. It says, Rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into thine hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and, and contend with him in battle. <clears throat> 
This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. I see the Lord's instruction there is to begin to possess the land. There is a process that is involved, and I think there could be an application to our lives, the, the things we face, the territory we are called to possess. Begin to possess it, at least begin to make a start. It may not all happen in one day, but the Lord, your God, will lead you in those ways. He will also put the fear of you upon the nations. Now, I don't know if the nations fear the church, but <clears throat> I think they do fear the God of heaven and earth. <clears throat> in the sense that they, they might not serve him in fear, in reverence and fear, but in their spirit, I believe the spirit of God doth move in such a way to bring that fear perhaps even upon the heathen. Because you see in the book of Jonah, when Jonah fell into that situation where he had, he had to come out and say that, you know, yeah, the lot fell on him as to why the, the sea was tempestuous. And it, and it came to light that he was the man. And so at that point he revealed to him, at least he was honest, he said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea in the dry land. And I always took interest in the reaction of that statement. It said the men were exceedingly fearful. And they say, why have you done this? Now, I don't know if they knew the God of the Hebrews. <clears throat> I would think maybe the fame of some of the stories of old would have been carried down and that people did have some knowledge of the Most High God. And maybe they were just too fearful to serve God, the most high God. It seemed like the tendency was of people to, to um, take on smaller gods, gods that weren't so hard to please. Maybe we can relate to them a little better. <clears throat> and so in an overall sense, uh, I, I feel the need to, um, to read the Bible. I sense the importance of reading the Bible and letting it relate to um, the things of our day. One, one interesting thing that I, I myself have, have seen with my Bible study is how different parts of the Bible relate one to another. That is a fascination to me, is that you begin to see connections and, and ways in which there are these invisible connections that in the spirit you can make. Um, you can see where that, those things correspond one to another in the word of God. But I think important in our day is, as well, the work of the, of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and Jesus, of course, who is the Word. Having all that in our, our uh, minds helps us to interpret properly the events we see around us in the world. Not just events, but it helps us to interpret and to uh, realize the truth of, of the church the truth of relationships that we should be having one with another. It may even help us understand politics a little better and, and where that all fits in. But most of all, I believe that the word of God can bring peace to all of those 
questions, the things that we face, it can bring a, a sense of peace that God is with us. And that we serve a, a great and glorious God. I invite you to Isaiah chapter 26. I thought of this verse in relation to um, a verse here, but I'm going to read more than one verse. And I think I'll begin at verse 7. Isaiah 26, verse 7 says, The way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. I had to think of that in relation to, to some of that. It says when God's judgments are in the earth, it is then that the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. At least they have that opportunity. Now it says later that the, the wicked do not learn righteousness. In other words, I don't think it has the, the right effect upon them and they begin to deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. When God's judgments come to bear on, on his creation, or, or you could say just his, his moving among the people, I believe it becomes as a, a divider, a divider between light and darkness. So often that is what I believe the Lord is wanting to do. In our day, he wants to create where there's a pronounced division between light and darkness. He wants to cut through all the muddle and the confusion. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And to help people realize this, I think he can bring things into, into the affairs of the world that help us realize. As recently, I saw uh, an illustration where a man set up two stepladders, and you know how a stepladder is slanted. Well, he took one and put it at the base of the other to where the steps were facing each other, and then he began to climb one foot on each ladder. He began to climb this ladder. And as he, as he got higher, he kind of ran into a little problem. He got to where he couldn't get any higher because things were spread out too much. And so the choice had to be made. Which ladder am I going to go to from here? I think that's a good illustration of, of where the Lord may bring us to in life. And we have to decide. We have to decide for the, the righteousness of God or the wickedness of the world. And I think so often ignorance results in our disobedience. An example of this is uh, Pharaoh. The first time Moses went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. 
Well, you see, his ignorance of the Lord caused him to make a wrong choice. It caused him to, rock, to, to disobey the Lord. At least he was honest. I don't know the Lord. So, pursue God. When God's judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I'd like to take you to Exodus chapter 11. And I do want to get into the New Testament uh, in, a, in a bit. <clears throat> Exodus chapter, um, let's first go to chapter 8, verse 22. This brings out how that God does want to make a distinction between right and wrong. Exodus 8, verse 22. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Chapter 11, verse 7. God says this, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man nor beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 4. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall none die of all that is the children of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that on, on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died, but the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So God, not only does he say what he's going to do, he says when I'm going to do it. He tells Pharaoh this. I think this was for Pharaoh's sake as much as anybody's. And yet, and so when, when this occurred, Pharaoh had a curiosity as to whether this was actually true about what God had said. And so he sent and he inquired and he found out that yes, indeed it was true. But it didn't change his heart. It didn't, it didn't reap any fruits of, of righteousness in his heart. He just rebelled even the more. His heart was hardened. And yet, I believe the Lord wanted that to happen. He wanted that to be shown. You know, there's a saying that, that those who, who hate the truth will begin to see the truth as hate. I think that's happening in our world today. Out of that, I think, should, it should stir in our hearts a desire and a, a thankfulness and a pursuit of, of being on the winning side, being on the right side of history, being on the right side of what God has chosen to revealed to us in his word.
whatever we face in this life, it is, we're told it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so, these were some of my musings from Deuteronomy, and I might take you yet to, to one more in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Verse 23, Moses says this, And it came to pass, when ye heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that ye came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, that we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and live? Go, go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And so I think we know that account where the people were, were shown the glory of God. They saw the fire and the darkness. There was, it was like darkness and fire and clouds all mixed together, and they, they became fearful of that. And they came near unto Moses, it says there in, in um, verse 23. I've noticed whenever the Bible talks about um, coming near unto a thing, approaching something, it's, it's usually in the context of, of a little bit of apprehension, a little bit of fear and trembling. And, and um, maybe to where you're asking a request, like Esther, when she came near unto the king and, and touched the scepter. There is, there is some humility, maybe even a shrinking back. And we see that was their, that was their reaction, their response to the glory of God. And I've wondered before, was that really a proper response from the people, to shrink back in that manner? If you, um, if you look at Exodus 20, and, and you don't have to turn here, but I just want to read from that original experience what Moses had to say about this situation. Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. It seemed like God wanted to bring his glory, his greatness, before the people for them to be able to evaluate this and, and let it uh, bring forth a righteousness, a, a fear that would keep them from sin and keep them in a, in a better standing and a walk with God because they could see his glory. But then you see where they shrunk back from that. They didn't want to accept it. Was that the best response on their part? Did their fear 
was the fear they had more of a, a reflection of a lack of courage. And so, in verse 28, the Lord did accept their response. The Lord heard the voice of your words, it says, when ye spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken unto thee, that they have well said all that they have spoken. But then in verse 29, the Lord kind of goes into a lament concerning that. He said, oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And so I see in that maybe a certain shyness, shying away from the, from the glory of God. It, it was too much for them. Moses didn't seem to think so. Maybe he was used to it. But I thought, you know, do, do we in our, in our own minds, do we shrink back from the greatness of God and the glory of God and what he is able to do in our midst? And so we want to serve a little lesser God, one that's not quite so, you know, present <coughs> and visible and evident because we're kind of comfortable with, with how things are in the, in the normal realm, in the natural realm. Well, I'd like to go now to Luke chapter 11 and just let those thoughts be with you. But in, in Luke chapter 11, we have the disciples coming to Jesus in verse 1. And it came to pass that he, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. I'm thinking maybe for, uh, to kind of bring some of my thoughts together this morning would be the, the title of teach us to pray. If we have a secretary here, I think sometimes they like to know the the title of the message and and so we can let it be that this morning teach us how to pray we see that in the in the response of at least one of the disciples after he had heard the lord praying and he said even as john also taught his disciples i don't know what john was teaching his disciples but I do know that there was in, in Matthew, I think chapter 5 or in chapter 9 or somewhere, where it said the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked, you know, why do your servants and us, uh, your servants are not fasting like we and the Pharisees are fasting. The disciples of John. It is interesting that, that both John and Jesus had disciples, apparently, within that same time period and it, it makes me wonder you know if they were in with the Pharisees the Pharisees probably had their ideas of how to pray and how to do this and if I understand right there were 18 prayers that made up the Jewish manual for you know for your um, private devotions <clears throat> And I just wonder if the way Jesus prayed didn't 
kind of was different. He, he prayed in a different way. And, you know, he addressed God as Father. I thought of that, does, does the, the term Father for God appear in the, in the Old Testament? And so I, I did a little looking this morning, and, and there are uh, just a handful of places where the idea of God as Father is in the Old Testament. It's not very common, and it's usually just kind of in a, in a general way that, that God will take care of you as a father or, or something to that regard. But really addressing him as father is not so common. But I thought, you know, Jesus taught them to pray, and that's where we get the Lord's Prayer. Is there some things we can look at with, with this prayer that would help us? help us know how to pray. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. You know, we acknowledge the person of God. We acknowledge his identity, his relationship to us. We also acknowledge his place of abode in the heavens. That is where he dwells. And often it is the case that where a person dwells does speak about their identity. The place of their habitation. He is in heaven and we are on earth. Thirdly, we acknowledge the name of the Lord. In the sense that it is hallowed. It is to be reverenced. It is to be feared. Simply just his name. And so we can, we can look at some of these, the, the manner in which this prayer is given to us. And I don't think most of us pray in this way. And I'm not saying we, we are to do it exactly because the Gospel of Matthew in this account says, after this manner, therefore pray you. And it's, it's just simply in this, in this style. It's not like we have to duplicate. But I do see some principles here. And one is... It says, thy kingdom come. Now that, to me, is a, is a statement. It's a declaration. It's a decree. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's another statement. Thy will be done. I think we can agree with that. Give us this day our, our daily bread. Well, that's... Is that asking or is that a command? It sounds like a command to me. Forgive us our sins. Now, you know, <clears throat> forgive us our sins. I, I see that as the, first, as the first part of the prayer that is, you could say, has a condition attached to it. Just like the, the command to honor your father and mother, it says it's the first commandment with, with a promise. Here we have a first uh, representation on how to pray that's attached to a condition, and that is we forgive. We forgive those. We extend forgiveness to enable to receive forgiveness. Number five, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. 
So I would ask you this morning, are these things asking God things? Or are they simply decreeing some things that would be good to happen? And I believe we, you know, we come to God in the spirit of humility, in the spirit of requesting. I think that's a given. But the prayer itself, as it's stated in this, in this manner, it is not in the manner of a request. It is rather in statements and, and commands. And I see that as perhaps, and it might have been part of the culture of that day, we see farther down in, in verse 5, Jesus goes to explain this a little more. He says, Which of you shall have a friend? Shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. And maybe it was the culture just to approach somebody and say, Hey, give me, you know. And Jesus went on to elaborate on this and how that God is a God that gives good gifts to his children. If a son shall ask a bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? And so on, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? In Matthew it says, give good things to them. And so you have the, the context too of verse 9 where you ask and you do receive, Jesus says. With, with the directive... The, is, comes the promise as well and it shall be given you he doesn't just say ask seek not it's and, and blindly just say those things but he, he says along with that attached to that is the confidence that we can have results and and maybe maybe our prayers should be a little more commanding a little more demanding pressing in to to what the, um, the good that we perceive in our spirits, we press into that and we contend for it in a spirit of we are in partnership with God. We can do this with a sense of boldness. And I think that little story he brings out about the persistence of the friend that was in his journey had nothing. And for a while he did not receive the, the answer he was looking for. Um, Jesus spoke that parable and, and I know there's things that we pray and we, we ask God for and we may not see results but I've, I've had to think that is not a cause to give up in our prayer to lose our faith concerning prayer itself remember I, I think it was the prophet Daniel that he was given the message from an angelic a messenger that Daniel your prayers have done more good than maybe you realize your prayers have ascended to the Lord you are dearly beloved and I think of that in in the case of Daniel and his his praying turn now to first um, Corinthians chapter 6 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. 
Now, I might just stop there and, and say the King James does not really uh, bring that out in, in the right sense. When it says, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church, it doesn't mean we, it's not talking about we, we go and find the, the person that has got the worst grades in school and, and let him make all the decisions. It's talking about those without the church. And if you have your new King James Version, it will, um, it will bring that out, I think, in a, in a more clear way. Actually, that, that verse should have a, a question mark at the end of it. Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church should be the way it's phrased. Um, so that could lead to confusion there, depending on how you read it. But Paul says in verse 5, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. And he talks there about the, the role the church has, us as brethren, the, the body of Christ have in, in judging, in weighing some matters, in bringing forth decisions, and handling difficulties. And he speaks there in verse uh, 6. But brother goeth the law with brother, that before, and that before the unbelievers. So I see him setting up a, a uh, he's establishing maybe an inferiority of those without. Those are the without, in, as far as their ability to judge. But I think this pertains to matter, spiritual matters. Um, in a large sense, it, it, could, it could blend with other aspects of life, but clearly, clearly we are able to think with the mind of Christ in, in matters that may not be directly related to, to the Bible or to church, but he gives us a clear understanding. But I had to think, you know, if we're a judge, how does a judge carry himself? What is, what is his manner of, the manner of his presence? And, you know, we speak the truth in love. And, and there's, a, there's a firmness that, that goes with that. And a decisiveness. You know, the judges, they have, they pronounce a sentence. They have this gavel they like to hit. And I guess something with, with the gavel hitting that wood is, helps with, establish the truth of that, of whatever decision they made. So we speak, uh, we speak the truth in love by the word of God and, and I think by the fire and the fervency of his spirit to us. Going back to the Old Testament, I'd like to look at Jeremiah chapter 6. Verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. God says, I'm going to give you the fruit of your, of your thoughts, the fruit of your thinking. If our minds are not renewed to, to the Lord, 
There will be a fruit. There will be a reaping of, of those thoughts and how we think. There's some importance attached to how we think. And I think it's Romans 7 that brings out, it talks about the law of the mind. The law of the mind is, is not necessarily good or evil. It, it's simply a tool that is used to, to process things and then the result can be either good or bad. And so I think in the same way where, where God can give us the fruit of our thoughts in, in a bad sense, uh, this, this can work to our advantage as well. Jeremiah uh, chapter 5, the previous chapter, verse 25. God says, your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. God wants us to have good things. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. But often I think what, and always you could say perhaps, in the case of iniquity, in the case of sin, those things will block the goodness of God from flowing into our lives. In knowing how to um, speak the words God gives to us, we do it by faith, and we do it in humility, and we do it, I think, with a, a certain amount of apprehension, especially if, if you're a preacher. You don't want to to lead people astray, but Proverbs 10:32 says, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. It says, the lips of the righteous feed many. There is a provision and abundance that the lips of the righteous can bring forth, whether it's in our praying. But anytime we activate our words, I think it, it works to set in motion things visible and invisible. Jesus invited us to speak to the mountain, say to the mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea. And I think how often Jesus spoke to inanimate objects, I will call it, things that you would think, well, they don't have ears, how can they hear? But he spoke to the fig tree. He spoke to the winds and the waves. He commanded things to happen. And so often I think we, we, we talk to God and we say, God, you command such and such to take place. When he has told us, you speak to the mountain. And Ezekiel was told to go prophesy to the bones and say unto the bones, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And because of that, the bones took on some, some semblance of order. They began to put on... Um, sinew and flesh and muscle but that wasn't enough he was told to command that bones and those flesh to live he was told to breathe life and to command life into the breath command the wind to enter the slain and the dead I believe there's a spiritual principle there in, in the words we share I think it's Proverbs that says life and death are in, the, are in the tongue, are in the power of the tongue. There's the good side of what we say, but there's also 
uh, when we address uh, the, the evil that is in the world, there's such a thing as rebuke. And Isaiah says, a thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one. I think how often Jesus rebuked the, the spirits of people that he helped out. And there was those that had a spirit of infirmity. He spoke to the spirit. He rebuked the spirit, not necessarily the person himself. And Paul and Silas were in a situation where there was a damsel that was, was harassing them. And she was calling out to them and saying, these men are the uh, men of God and they are sharing the gospel. What she said was actually correct, but after many days, Paul got tired of that. And he turned to that damsel and he rebuked. It says specifically he rebuked the spirit that was in her. There may be a time for that, and God may call us into a situation where we have to think back and we remember how these things were, how they were in the Old Testament, or how they were in the New Testament in the early church. We are still in the church age, and I believe God is pouring out a latter rain in which his spirit and his presence and, and the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Maybe in a progressive sense. And when that happens, you often see where there is a manifestation of darkness on the other side that is rising up to meet the light. And there is a conflict in that. And so I guess the, the, the cry of the of the message here this morning is to, to not fear, to be aware of where we are, the times and the seasons, and, and to let the power of God flow through us in our prayer life, in our thought life, to be cleansed of the things that are hindering. There was much cleansing and purification that took place in the sacrifice of the, that, that whole system. But it reflected the ability of God to be able to then work in the people's lives. It was only after they were purified and cleansed and consecrated and sanctified that God was able to, to make that happen in their experience. And that is a call upon our lives and our day. You know, there is a time to wait upon the Lord to be of good courage and to strengthen our hearts. But I had to think of one more story, and I hate to uh, tell you too much today because the clock does tend to get away, but I noticed at the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses instructed the people that, hey, wait and see the salvation of the Lord. I think he was correct in his, in his advice there but I wonder if Moses was in the in the backstage was talking to God and saying God you know we got a problem here how are you gonna fix it um, this looks impossible God what are you gonna do because the next verse says that God told Moses why criest thou out to me why criest thou out to me He said speak to the people that they go forward. I think that's a word for our day. Let's use our 
our mouth, our hearts, our tongues, and our lives to bring forth life, maybe speak life to dead bones, that they raise up and rise up, and that the glory of the Lord could rise upon us even while darkness is in the earth. I'm going to ask the song leader to lead us in 217 from the church hymnal. Now from the altar of my heart, let sweetest incense rise. And these realities become more precious as we understand the Old Testament. Assist thy Lord, servant, Lord, to offer that evening sacrifice. It talks about an evening sacrifice. Maybe that's an evening song. But I, I'd kind of like to sing that song here this morning. Uh, Brother Dave. 217 in the church hymnal. Oh, now. 